Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? On the hottest days of summer, stepping outside can feel like stepping into a blast furnace. The only escapes are shade, swimming holes, or indoors with air conditioning, if you have any of those. As the planet warms, cities are only getting hotter. And it seems there's no turning back, no turning down the temperature. This week, we look at heat. Often overlooked, it's the deadliest weather disaster in the United States, hitting poorer neighborhoods hard. Projections suggest it will become even deadlier for Canada as well. But one city is stepping up to the sweltering challenge with lessons for us all. Across much of the country this summer, people have been feeling the heat, and that includes some of Canada's normally chilly locations. Even in the far, far north, on Ellesmere Island in the north, we set records at, at places as about as close to the North Pole as you can get. Uh, Eureka, 21.2 degrees. I mean, that would be like 40 degrees in Toronto or Ottawa. David Phillips is a senior climatologist with Environment and Climate Change Canada. He says central and eastern Canada have had a lot of days reaching 30 degrees and hotter, as much as triple the average summer. And if that doesn't make you sweat, how about this? In the past couple of decades, our summer nights have been warming up too. The difference between the daytime high and the nighttime low is narrowing. It's much closer. And so that is why we find the heat warnings the heat waves of recent years more unhealthy. We are feeling the effects of a warming planet, and not everyone experiences heat in the same way. Do you have air conditioning, a pool, a backyard with cool shade? For some, where they live determines just how much they can cool off. My name is Nadine Shalafu. I'm Indigenous, an urban Indigenous in Edmonton, Alberta, and I live in poverty, which makes it difficult for a living situation. So I live in um, social housing construct. I can't cook in my house, it's so hot. I have a huge window that is the only window in my apartment. And it has a small, maybe two foot by three and a half foot window opening. And it's a crank window, so you can't even fit like a regular humidifier if you wanted to through there. There's no escaping it. There's no air conditioning. I have one fan that I use to help circulate the mediocre temperature air. And it's so hot that I don't sleep very well at night. I have to have um, wet rags around me to keep me cool. There's a lot of things I can't do because I am um, physically disabled mobility-wise. I require a walker to get around and help me um, 
maneuver most places. So I can't go out and just walk for a couple hours to keep cool or, you know, to enjoy the outside air. And with COVID, um, I'm restricted even more because I have respiratory illnesses. So there's a lot of places I can't go and uh, participate in or be active in like I was before. Um, I can't afford to move to somewhere where I could have better windows and, and access to air outside. I can't move to a place that maybe has already air conditioning in it um, because I just can't financially afford to. In fact, she's been dealing with the heat for such a long time, she's become something of an expert. In general, um, applying a better, I guess, heat-friendly city is difficult because you can't just install air conditioning into every building. Air conditioning is not eco-friendly, so um, you're just causing more harm than you are, you know, help. Um, but having having circulatory fans having proper ventilated systems where you have an in system and an out system, I think would be a huge asset to any city. If they wanted to be more eco-friendly, they could use it through solar power. Nadine Shalafu in Edmonton, where she lives and helps others to navigate their way around social housing. Well, part of learning to live with more and more hot days and nights means planning for them. And planning, of course, means studying what may happen in the months and years to come. Scott Krayenhoff is an assistant professor in the School of Environmental Sciences at the University of Guelph. He's one of the authors of a recent paper looking at cities, heat, and the intertwined future of both. Hello. Hi, Laura. Why is it important, do you think, to focus on cities when we talk about heat? I think there's at least a couple of reasons. One is that that is where most people live. So that's where health impacts, impacts on comfort comfort and livability, impacts on things like how much energy we need to use to heat and cool our buildings are going to occur. They're going to occur in cities where people are living. The second reason is that cities tend to be warmer than their rural surroundings. So and there's, a, there's a number of reasons for this, and this effect is particularly pronounced at night. So most people live in cities, and cities are going to tend to be warmer relative to their rural surroundings. So if we have a heat wave, city might be even warmer than the already hot rural surrounding area. So tell me some of those factors what what in a city that make the heat more intense. Yeah, there's there's quite a few. Um, one big one is simply that we remove a lot of vegetation. So we, you know, cut down trees or plow over farmers' fields and introduce impervious surfaces. So these are like concrete, uh, asphalt, building roofs. And these surfaces tend to retain less water. And water is one of the key ways that we can reduce heat. Also, these materials we introduce store and release heat very well. They're like sponges for heat, um, so they can keep the heat in the city. The buildings tend to slow down the wind and not allow infrared cooling. So this is essentially cooling um, by radiation. And finally, there's a lot of heat emitted in cities, you know, car motors, um, air conditioning systems, those all emit heat out into the environment, the local city environment. Right. So we've known about those kinds of things for a long, long time. But what your research did was look at American cities and heat exposure and looking at how bad it could get? Yeah, we we looked at all the major metropolitan areas across the U.S. And what we did is we accounted for several factors looking into the future. So 
these aren't predictions. These are projections. We're looking at possible scenarios if we essentially continue the way we've been going. And we looked at three factors. One is climate change, which most people are familiar with. That's going to increase the number of extreme heat days, or, or you could think of that in terms of heat waves. We also looked at growing cities, so paving over more farmland or forests, you know, increasing the number of roads, the number of buildings. That is all, for the due to the factors I just mentioned, that is all going to increase the amount of heat in the city. The third and very important factor we looked at was projections of how urban populations might grow. So people are moving to cities and many cities around the US and uh, many large cities in Canada are growing in some cases very rapidly. And so that means more people in these hot cities being exposed to these hot temperatures. So we combined those three and looked at how many people might be exposed in different cities in different regions of the US under future conditions. So what's the answer? How bad could it get? If we sort of continue on with this path that we're moving on right now, it, it could get quite bad. You know, we're, we would be looking at uh, maybe heat waves that last half the summer, um, to give you a, a very rough estimate, and a lot more people exposed to that extreme heat. And, and those heat wave temperatures maybe being a little bit warmer than the heat waves we experience now. That sounds unlivable. Yeah. I mean, if you look to certain cities like Phoenix, where they do get essentially unlivable temperatures during the summer, everyone spends most of their time indoors. Almost all buildings have air conditioning. If not, you know, it's like 99 point something percent of buildings have air conditioning. And, you know, it would be many cities moving more in that direction. Now, the problem with that is is multiple. One is you're, you have to expend a lot more energy to... Um, keep buildings cool and therefore people cool. Number two, if there's any failure in, you know, our electrical grid or, uh, you know, in, in any of the systems that would deliver that cooling to the buildings, then you have, you know, a large fraction of the population potentially without the necessary cooling under extremely hot conditions. And as, and as you said, that these are, these are projections, not predictions. Um, it doesn't have to be this way, I suppose, if, if you're sounding the warning, but what's being done right now to mitigate that exposure? You know, there's a certain amount of climate change that is already occurring and that we've already committed to, essentially, and that's going to be ongoing for the next several uh, decades, really. And um, so even if we are able to really be successful on the climate change mitigation front, there's going to be additional warming compared to what we're experiencing right now. So I think cities need to also think about ad- adaptation and We've done some work um, looking at options, things like adding more vegetation, like street trees back into cities, changing some of the materials we use, like cool using cool pavements or cool roofs. Caveat I'll mention is that if we continue with a sort of a business as usual um, climate change and urban development pathway, the heat that's headed our way in cities in the next several decades, we can't offset all of that simply by changing how our cities are designed. We can offset part of it, um, but not all of it. Am I being dramatic when when I suggest to you that this is actually about survival in cities? It's not a pretty picture. And I I think humans are adaptable and there's a lot of ways we can adapt. And, you know, we're looking at what I've just spoken to you about our infrastructure-based adaptations. How do we change our the physical environment in the city to adapt? There's also behavioral and social adaptations, you know, cooling centers and and other things that we can do at an individual and community level 
to cool ourselves down. And, and to a certain extent, those can be very successful. I think it, it comes back to, you know, how much heat can we and do we want to tolerate and, and how much energy do we want to use and what's the source of that energy to actually try and keep ourselves comfortable. Well, I just want to say, I mean, you mentioned Southern Canada and your research is focused on the United States, but do those same principles apply here in Canada? Uh, in terms of climate change, um, certainly. In terms of urbanization and population growth, without actually having done the work and crunched the hard numbers, I'm, I'm hesitant to make any firm uh, statements about Canadian cities, but I think certainly in terms of climate change, there's, I would anticipate that Seattle and Vancouver are going to have similar added heat burdens in the future or, or changes in um, extreme heat in the future. I would anticipate that Toronto would probably be similar to Detroit or Buffalo. Um, those, those would be the clearest examples. Now, demographic changes um, might be quite different. So Toronto might be growing a lot faster than Buffalo, for example. Well, this, and that would, in terms of the overall heat burden, that would that would differentiate them. Scott, this begs the question, why isn't this kind of research being done in Canada then? Certainly my group is, is tackling this to a certain degree, and I think there is some research being done. What is really missing is certainly at a national level, it hasn't necessarily been done with a real focus on urban areas that I'm aware of. Also really looking at how can how can we adapt to heat that we're like or extreme heat future extreme heat that we're likely committed to and and really starting to explore different options and in a given city which options might be most useful or most impactful most helpful right but i'm wondering what what you think is at risk if we're not looking at the future of our canadian cities in this way well i, I think ultimately we're we're getting down to the health of our urban citizens and the livability of our cities uh, if we don't understand what's coming and plan appropriately. If we know cities will keep getting larger, which I think is probably a safe assumption, how, how do you reimagine people's thinking to stop building places that get too hot? That's a great question. And there's a lot more that can be done if you're, if you're thinking about a new neighborhood or a new subdivision, for example. In many cases, we're dealing with you know large swaths of city that are already built. And we're not going to, for example, tear down buildings and rebuild them just to uh, create a better local climate. But yes, the key things are adding more vegetation, adding materials that help prevent too much heat in the summer, but don't compromise us in the winter. So in Canada, there's a real, we really have to think about the whole year. We have to think about balancing any anything we introduce into, the, into our neighborhoods. How is it going to impact not only the summer and, and keeping our cities cool, but how is it going to um, impact the winter? We don't want to keep our, our wintertime days even cooler. As long as we keep having so, winter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Another open question. Um, Scott, it's been really interesting. Thank you for your time. Very welcome. Thank you. Scott Cranhoff is an assistant professor at the University of Guelph. My name is Rudy Kelly, and I am an herb original. I am chief. My dad was a great chief of the Simshan Nation, beloved by his people. But at home, with his family... He brought anger and pain. He told me that to succeed, I would have to leave everything behind. Now I'm on a journey to find out who and what my dad really was. The Herb Original is an all-new CBC podcast. Available now.
The need for us to think about the future of heat in cities is urgent, but the need to protect ourselves starts now. My next guest says we need to learn to respect the heat. Sarah Henderson is with the British Columbia Centre for Disease Control. Her research focuses on heat, what makes some people more at risk than others, and just how many people it's actually killing. Hello. Hello. Tell me, how deadly is heat? It can be quite deadly, especially when we have hot weather that lasts for more than a day or two. So what are we talking about then? Um, Are we looking at scores of people who are vulnerable in that case? So when I'm talking about this, I always fall back to a 2009 event we had in Vancouver. And in that case, over the course of a seven-day period, we had about 110 people die because it was very hot outside. Is that what the official count was, 110 people? It's hard to make an official count when it comes to hot weather. We only know sort of statistically because we have a sense of how many people we expect to die on any given day. And when the people uh, we observe who have died is larger than the expected number, then we know that something funny has happened. Why is it so challenging to calculate how many people die from a heat wave compared to other extreme weather like a tornado, for example? When somebody dies from hot weather, usually it's because uh, they've had some sort of cardiovascular event that was caused by the hot weather, but not necessarily attributed to the hot weather. So it, you know, it looks like any other death that could happen on any other day. Well, are there uh, some who are more at risk than others? Certainly anybody who has any pre-existing health conditions such as diabetes or heart disease will be at higher risk. There's some sorts of pharmaceuticals that affect how your body thermoregulates and people taking those prescription drugs may be at higher risk. There's also illicit drugs such as cocaine or methamphetamines that affect how your body thermoregulates and people who use those drugs may be at higher risk. What we have found in Vancouver especially is that if you live in a hot neighborhood that doesn't have a lot of trees and doesn't have a lot of green space and has a lot of concrete and asphalt, then you may be at higher risk as well because it's hotter in your neighborhood than it is in other places of the city. Does that suggest that there's a a sort of a socioeconomic divide that puts people more at risk? We have definitely seen that in Vancouver, and and I know it's been observed in other places around the world as well, but we see that neighborhoods that are more deprived have uh, higher unemployment rates. Those are the places that are really at risk. Why is it so important to calculate the, the deaths properly? Well, you know, you made the um, comparison with other extreme weather events, such as hurricanes or tornadoes or wildfires in the U.S. And, and that's part of the way that we quantify and evaluate the damage that these events cause to human society. If we can't do that with hot weather, we can't talk about hot weather in the same way that we can talk about these things that are obviously catastrophic because of the death that they have caused. The other reason is that it 
helps people to take these events seriously when they occur. Oftentimes, we're looking backwards at an event and saying, oh, you know, 100 people died that week. We want to be able to say during that week, look, people are dying because it's hot so that other people can start taking protective action. When you see um, the level of attention that's been put on the pandemic, um, the daily news conferences, the, the, the persistent warnings to people and behavior, is that the level of attention you're talking about that needs to be paid to heat? So I see them as very parallel in my mind, but I think a lot of people... Um, you know, they don't give the environment the same kind of weight as they give infectious diseases when it comes to its public health impacts. How did you start looking at, at this issue of mortality and heat? When I first started working at the BCCDC, it was 2010. My boss threw me this file and said, hey, we had this hot weather event last summer, it looks like quite a few people died. Can you look into it more? And that was really my introduction to this area. Before then, I'd always been focused on on air pollution. Um, but I'm very, very glad that I've had the opportunity to study hot weather as well. Why is that? When it comes to air pollution, you know, it, it has a big impact on human health, but it doesn't overwhelm people and kill them the same way hot weather can overwhelm people and kill them. And, and that, to me, is a really big difference. Heat is a safety issue. You can become overwhelmed and at risk of death very, very quickly. Now, you're going to take a look at, at Ottawa and Montreal to recalculate the death tolls there from a 2015 heat wave. Why is that an important next step? Montreal has a very good surveillance system when it comes to hot weather. They try to do reporting of hot weather deaths in real time. And because they have that really good system, we're going to be able to compare some statistical methods we've developed in British Columbia to their really good system to see if the statistical methods can accurately identify the people they know who have died because it was hot outside. And if that works, we'll have a better way to possibly attribute deaths to heat across Canada. Okay, that, that, that seems like an important step. So, so we know then that heat can be deadly, as you've told us. What can people do to protect themselves? There are definitely some behavioral changes that you can make. First and foremost, I want people to know that hot weather can be dangerous. It's not a challenge to overcome. It's an environmental condition to respect. One of the key things to staying safe is staying cool and keeping your body temperature within a safe range. Your body does that naturally by sweating. So if you're not sweating well, you're not cooling well. That means you need to drink a lot of water and stay well hydrated, even if you don't feel thirsty so that your body can continue to produce sweat. And if your body's not producing enough sweat and you're not staying cool, spray yourself down, stand by a fan with a wet t-shirt on. All of those things can produce a really cooling effect. It's interesting to hear you talk about it because when it comes to severe winter weather, we all know what we need to do to stay warm. <laughs> so it just it's the reverse. It's, it's the reverse. And it's, it's, you, you raise a great point. Canadians are very well adapted to dealing with colder weather. 
now we're looking at a climate future where we have to deal with colder weather and sometimes hotter weather and we have to learn all of those behaviors for hotter weather and and there's other places we can look to where it's been hot for years and years if you look to the mediterranean or you look to south america there are places where people cope with this kind of weather all the time and they have really good behavioral strategies in place now sarah we've heard a bit about what cities are, are doing to deal with heat. But what, I'm wondering what your vision for a heat-friendly city or community, what would that look like? So our research has, at least in British Columbia, really highlighted the importance of green space and having trees around and having vegetation around. There's two reasons we hypothesize for that. First of all, trees obviously provide shade because leaves are moist and trees have moisture. When it's really hot outside, they evaporate a little bit. So they basically sweat as well. And that helps to cool the local environments. Well, Sarah Henderson, I want you to know I have my water bottle right here and I'm sipping as we talk. <laughs> I'll, I'll take your advice to heart. And I just want to thank you very much for talking to me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Bye-bye. Bye. Sarah Henderson is a senior scientist with the British Columbia Centre for Disease Control. She's also an associate professor with the School of Population and Public Health at the University of British Columbia. A bit earlier, you heard Scott Cranhoff mention Phoenix, Arizona, and it's a place he described as having unlivable temperatures. Everyone spends most of their time indoors. Almost all buildings have air conditioning. If not, it's like 99 point something percent of buildings have air conditioning. But here's the thing. Not everyone has access to that air conditioning all of the time. So the city of Phoenix is trying to come up with some better strategies to help. And it couldn't come at a better time as 2020 is now the city's hottest summer on record. Our associate producer, Emily Rundell Watson, spoke to people there about how they are adapting. And she joins me now. Hi, Emily. Hi, Laura. So just how hot has it been? It has been excruciatingly hot, and the average temperature has been hovering around 35 and a half degrees Celsius, and the average high has been around 42. So we heard Sarah Henderson talk about how deadly heat can be earlier, and Mark Hartman agrees. Heat is kind of like a silent storm. You know, there's more heat-related deaths than every other natural disaster combined every year. So he's actually from Vancouver, but he's Phoenix's chief sustainability officer now. And for him, heat and the people it affects is a big priority. And that's something I also heard from Nathan Smith. You just run for the air conditioning. So you move from air conditioned to air conditioned to air conditioned, which means you go from the car to the office, from the office to the car, from the car to the house. And you always try to stay indoors and then until the weather gets better. You know, that's what it's like for someone like me. Now, if you're homeless, you don't have that option. So Nathan is the chief program officer for Phoenix Rescue Mission. And he says that people who are homeless make up the majority of people who die from heat there. Well, then what's being done if this homeless, if homeless people are so vulnerable, how are they, they keeping them cool or helping them try to stay cool? Right. Well, it might sound basic, but if you don't have a home, how do you get a cold glass of water on a hot day and stay hydrated? And that gap is the exact kind of thing that Nathan Smith is working on with this network of city officials, climate scientists, academics, and more. And they're actually meeting regularly to identify these gaps, train people, and then mobilize a strategy like delivering huge quantities of water on a hot day. 
But that kind of solution only goes so far, Laura. And if they could get people off the streets, Nathan believes that they would see a significant drop in the number of heat-associated deaths overall. How can we turn this cold bottle of water that we received from the Heat Relief Network into a conversation starter that might inspire an individual living on the streets to permanently exit homelessness? And so that's where, to me, it really comes down to is you have this network of resources and education, and then you've got these people working boots on the ground who are trying to help folks end their homelessness and therefore remove themselves from the heat effects out there. You know, Emily, this is so interesting because it's like the upside down version of the kind of discussions we have during Canadian winters about getting homeless people off the street to protect them from the harsh winter temperatures. And Phoenix is is trying to do the same thing on the opposite end of the spectrum. So they're working with Nathan on that. What else is the city doing? Well, exactly. That's exactly it. So Mark Hartman told me about how Phoenix is actually redeveloping one whole low income community there. And part of that is designing the buildings to optimize shade and coolness. So they're putting these indentations or U-shapes in the sides of some buildings, which theoretically help deflect heat off of one side and then create a bit of a cooling breeze on the other side. They want to see what they call a cool corridor run straight through that community. And that's a feature that they're hoping to replicate across the city along popular routes so that people can easily move from one place to another to do things like get groceries or travel to school and ultimately stay cool along the way. And that's not just about planting more trees, but imagine parasol-like structures that would add shade. And then this is a throwback to my elementary school days, water fountains. (laughs) Oh, yes. Good old water fountains. (laughs) (laughs) So Mark also told me about a program that the city is developing to train what they call qualified heat responders. And those are people who live in communities and they're trained to recognize the signs of heat stroke or heat exhaustion. And then they know how to treat people in those situations. And that would be really valuable for people experiencing homelessness, but it's being done with the wider population in mind. And that's actually a key part of how the city approaches heat. So vulnerable populations for Phoenix also means people who find themselves outside a lot, a lot more vulnerable to the heat. Of course, those people are vulnerable too. What is the city doing on that front? One of their priorities are outdoor play spaces. So schools have actually teamed up with designers, urban planners, nurses, safety consultants, and researchers to totally reimagine these areas. Jennifer Vanoss is an assistant professor in the School of Sustainability at Arizona State University. Fun fact, she's also a Canadian. What are all these Canadians doing in Phoenix? <laughs> Working on heat, for heaven's sakes. I'll have to get back to you on that one. Okay. But, <laughs> so she studies the intersection of extreme heat and health. And she's one of the researchers who's actually working on totally redesigning play spaces at schools in Phoenix. They're almost like mini heat islands within a larger heat island because of the way they're designed and how hot those surfaces can get. And I think it gives us a nice opportunity to mitigate the overexposures to heat and also protect a vulnerable population and use examples for how other spaces in urban areas can also try to move towards providing pockets of cooling and shade in an otherwise pretty hot area. So if you think about a playground, there's a lot of plastic, rubber, metal, overall really unnatural materials. And so they want to totally flip that to be more natural 
And part of that is designing a way that things like summer winds aren't blocked because those can actually be really cooling. Okay. Natural playgrounds to me are forests, um, <laughs> lakesides, ocean fronts. How do you redesign an urban playground to, to make sure that it has takes those kinds of things into account? If you picture things like grass and rolling hills, they use different pieces of rocks and wood. There's water features that kids can play with, misting systems, pathways throughout made of dirt wood stumps that kids could sit on and have conversations, protected shaded spaces for them to cool off when they're not playing. And then they also want to use trees and hedges that actually block the noise and air pollution from traffic going by. And Jennifer told me that redesigning these play spaces can actually make them six to 10 degrees cooler, which when we're thinking about 42 degree weather is very significant. And it can drop the temperature inside as well so that air conditioners don't have to run as much to keep students comfortable. So overall, being able to come up with creative solutions like this to adapt to heat is really about first understanding the where, when, why, and who is actually affected by it. And as Jennifer told me, that's really one of the biggest takeaways from all of this. Understanding social vulnerability is much more important than understanding the actual temperature of the day. We're very used to seeing temperatures always above 40 degrees Celsius here. Um, that's just the normal. And people accept it, but there's also people that cannot physiologically handle it. And, and we need to find new ways to be able to cool off that don't always involve air conditioning. So interesting to, to hear about all of this from up here where we are going to be and already are experiencing warmer temperatures and learning about the fact that we just have to, as they say, respect the heat. Thank you, Emily. Thanks, Laura. And that does it for us this week. If you haven't already, give us a review and a rating and tell your friends to subscribe too. Thanks this week to the What on Earth team. Associate producer Emily Rendell-Watson, producers Lisa Johnson and Molly Siegel. Our technician is Matthias Wolfson. Manisha Janakaram is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.